Welcome to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and I'm proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Every episode of this podcast will bring in a variety of experts to help all writers incorporate more authentic cops, crime, and criminals in their stories. For this episode, best-selling author Chris Pavoni has stepped into the interrogation room just to clear a few things up. Chris has a new release coming out called The Paris Diversion, and his previous releases include The Expats, The Accident, and The Travelers. The Expats won both the Edgar and Anthony Awards for Best First Novels and have been translated into 20 languages. The Accident and The Travelers are both bestsellers, and The Travelers is currently being developed for film. Chris grew up in Brooklyn, graduated from Midwood High School and Cornell University, and worked in editorial positions in the publishing industry for nearly two decades. When his wife accepted a position in Luxembourg, his family moved abroad, and Chris focused on raising their sons and began his writing career. Chris, thank you so much for making time to join us today. Thank you for having me. Great to be here. No, I'm, I'm selfishly really interested in this new release, The Paris Diversion, um, due to my, my own upcoming release about the same city. Uh, for readers new to you, uh, what should they know about this novel? Uh, this is an American expat woman, Kate Moore, who wakes up one day and discovers that uh, Paris is under a terrorist attack. And as she begins to investigate what's going on, she discovers that the terrorist attack is not at all what it seems and that it involves her family. Yeah, I'm, I've just recently started reading this. We set this thing up so quickly. I, I normally try to dedicate you know, enough time to be through the book or the, the majority of a book. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I'm really intrigued with this story and with this character, Kate. You've done a really smashing job on this. Thank you. Now, when, when you started out in, in editing, uh, spent nearly two decades there, what was your, first, I guess, how did you get into editing in the publishing industry, and what was that experience like? I had a number of really crappy jobs when I was 21, 22 <laughs> years old. In, in publishing, I've, I've always been a proud quitter. Uh, I think I've had, in total, more than 30 jobs in my life, and when I don't like something, I've just moved on. Uh, when I first got out of college, I had no idea what I was going to do. I got a substitute teaching license to teach in New York City because my parents and all their friends were New York public school teachers, and I figured that would be fine. I did that for a few months, and then I really thought that I wanted to work in publishing. And mm -hmm. I, I think about this a lot now because I'm, I'm 50 years old, and I've been working for three decades now, and... I know a lot of people who are my age who've been working the same amount of time, and almost everybody I know chose what to do with their careers, with their lives, Early when on. they were basically teenagers. Mm -hmm. And very few people have had the sorts of midlife crises where they <laughs> throw everything away and go into, into an entirely new field. And it strikes me that that's amazing because either one of two things is happening, either teenagers are always right about what they want to do in their lives, <laughs> which I think is unlikely. Yes. Or the second possibility is that many of us never really seriously consider whether we've chosen the right path. And even I, who I, I quit my job when I was 38 years old and I, I walked out the door and I said, never again, I never wanted to walk work in an office and a full-time job again, but I didn't go very far. I went from being an editor to being a writer. I still work in book publishing. Mm -hmm. I still have the same group of friends and professional contacts. I still have 
a lot of the same life. I really didn't make, I mean, I made a, a very big change on the way I live my day-to-day -day life, but my industry is exactly the same. And I'm surrounded by people who are really in the same boat. If you chose to be this sort of thing when you were 20, 21, 22 years old, you are still this sort of thing when you're 50. And I think that's remarkable. Yeah, you know, in, in my own experience, I, I guess I have something of a, a little bit of a parallel life in that, you know, I've, uh, my, my parents were very, they're very kind of, um, I guess, stereotypical of what you've discussed that, you know, they started an industry, they stayed in the industry, you know, work is work. It's not meant to be a source of happiness or fulfillment. If it was, they would call it fun. Um, yeah. And I and some of the folks that, that I grew up with from my childhood have kind of bounced around um, a little bit, you know, different industries, different careers, different jobs um, in search of something that's, you know, makes that third of your life a little more fulfilling than just the mm -hmm. paycheck. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it's ironic. I, I feel very grateful to my parents for having been these kind of rocks that, you know, we could always count on. Like if my risk failed and I was going to be homeless, I knew I could go back to mom's house. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, it's their allowance for that unhappiness that allowed me all this risk to to pursue my own and right. it's always struck me as very ironic um but you know maybe it's you know we're the, some of the first generation that decided they maybe wanted to be happy with the whole of their life um now what what drove you to write about paris um and and about this novel well uh really i wanted to write a book about a terrorist event. And I didn't know for a long time what that terrorist event was going to be. I I lived, my wife and I lived in 2001, extremely close to the World Trade Center, four city blocks away. And I wow. was home at 8.46 in the morning when the plane zoomed by and I spun around and looked around to see what the hell was going on. And I, I saw uh, out our southern window, which was, really an incredible view of these massive buildings that completely dominated the field of vision from these big windows in this loft apartment. And sometimes I would just sit on the couch and stare at them awestruck. And this Tuesday morning, I was staring at a hole in one of them. And I immediately called my wife who had already gotten to the office and said, I think a plane just hit the World Trade Center. And um, I spent a lot of that day fearful for my life. Uh, when the buildings came down, um, it looked to me briefly both times like these massive debris clouds were coming my way at 100 or 200 miles an hour. Who the hell knew? And I-beams or entire buildings were going to come through the windows or the roof of my building and kill me. Um, and eventually I walked outside, uh, found a policeman who told me I was going to need to evacuate within a few hours. The whole neighborhood was going to be closed down, electricity off, water, gas, everything. Neighborhood evacuated. So the dog and I marched across the Brooklyn Bridge, which is just a couple of blocks in the other direction. Mm -hmm. I kept staring back to see no World Trade Centers there. And we were walking through all this ash. And it was just so powerful, the feeling of what was going on there, this constant doubt that day of whether I was living in a situation where I needed to figure out if this was life or death or not. And it wasn't for me. Um, it wasn't really for anybody. Nobody, very few people, civilians, 
made life or death decisions that day. Um, but a lot of people did die. A lot of first responders obviously did die. A lot of people did make life or death decisions. And then living in New York, the, the following months, for first of all, we were evacuated from that apartment for more than a month. We were not allowed to live there. Um, when we finally did move home, it was to a neighborhood that had been penned in to 12,000 feet of newly erected perimeter fencing that was patrolled by National Guardsmen wearing flak jackets and helmets and carrying assault rifles. And you needed to show ID at checkpoints to get into where we live, to get into home. And uh, the stadium lights were blaring all through the night, every night with the sounds of earth movers and this constant stench of these massive piles of smoldering rubble that were not extinguished for 100 days. They were on mm -hmm. fire and we lived uh, less than a thousand feet away from those holes in the ground and we were meanwhile we'd gone back to work you know it, life was going on and we we're mm -hmm. taking the subway and i was going to an office building that was evacuated uh, every few days because of bomb threats and anthrax was showing up in mailboxes all around new york city and it was just such a scary place just walking around on a daily basis if a big truck rumbled by, everybody jumped. And, you know, if you heard somebody screaming in the distance, you thought, oh, my God, here it is. Here's the thing that we're waiting for. We've always known that something is coming next, and here it is right now. And it looked permanent. This fear, this sense that this city was going to be attacked again, that felt like it was never going to go away. But, of course, it did. And, you know, and, and the feelings faded no longer walked around the city panicked, no longer worried about cars backfiring, meaning somebody was getting shot, and I no longer really worried about it. And it faded from my mind until 15 years later, I got off a plane in Paris, and this was a year after uh, the Charlie Hebdo mm -hmm. massacre and the November attacks, and it was just days after this uh, giant terrorist attack in Nice where a crowd plowed into people yes. on Bastille Day and killed all so many people. And I got off the plane and took the train into downtown Paris to spend a week there by myself doing some work on a completely different book. And I was immediately struck by how much Paris in 2016 felt like New York in the fall of 2001. And there were clusters of soldiers patrolling everywhere, and not just in front of the Eiffel Tower and the Louvre, but on quiet city blocks, residential streets, where just, mm. you know, there was nobody except some parents taking their children to school, and they'd walk by, you know, four people carrying assault rifles and wearing helmets, and that's just not something we're used to seeing in this day and age, in a place like Paris, in a place like New York. It's just not part of what it feels like to live in the contemporary world in places like that. And yet it was exactly what it felt like to live in New York in 2001. And I felt such a kinship with these people. And I felt like I knew what they were going through in Paris then. And I knew that this power of terrorism, of living with this fear on a day-to-day -day basis could be a thing that defined your life and defined a whole city. And I, I wanted to write a book about it. And I knew that finally, 15 years later, this was the book that I wanted to write about terrorism, that it wouldn't be a 9-11 book in New York, but that it would be similar to a 9-11 type of experience, but in Paris. Um, for a lot of reasons, I didn't want to write a 9-11 novel or a terrorism novel that was set in New York. And the main reason yes. being that so many people had done it. Um, 
but Paris gave me the opportunity. Yeah, I would, I would imagine that walking, having that experience in 2016 had to be so heartbreaking all over again, um, knowing what you'd been through, what New York had been through, and seeing for these people what they were going through and knowing what their future held. Yeah. Um, and the opening of your book, um, I was when I was reading through that, um, in in Kate's perception of you know the the normal Paris, and that that felt felt like a, a big schism to me. And hearing your explanation, I, I feel like that had to be a very personal thing for you to write. It was, yeah. And I, I think the there are a lot of ways that uh, violence and peril and conflict are depicted in fiction. And a lot of the setups involve people who expect to be involved in violence yes. and lethal conflict. And that's part of what we understand when we read books whose protagonists are policemen or spies. Uh, that's what a lot of thrillers are. You know, you're, you're there in that space, in that type of fiction, whether it's a, a book or a television show or a movie, because it's exactly what you expect. Um, my experience of 9-11, you know, Parisians' experience, and most of our experiences are a very different thing, which is that you wake up expecting no violence whatsoever, that that's not a part of daily life for so many people, and that when something does happen, when you realize that something is on the horizon, when you hear sirens at an unnatural time, and there are too many of them, when you realize that this is not a normal situation, that to me is a very powerful moment. And that, that's the moment that I felt in my apartment at 8.47 in the morning in 2001. And that's the moment I felt these people were now familiar with in Paris. And that was the moment I wanted to open the book with. It's not, not the, a situation where violence is expected, but where it's completely unexpected and change, changes everybody's lives. Now, in the opening scene, and, and your the protagonist Kate, I am, um, I guess, going to be humble enough to to admit some of my my own fears here. I would absolutely love to write a female protagonist that's the you know the the, the lead character, mm -hmm. but I am absolutely petrified that women are going to read my character, my Kate and immediately know that a man wrote it and not be able to relate to it. Yeah. How, how did you go about writing Kate so that the female audience would find her believable and relatable and, and maybe question, you know, whether Chris, you know, was a, a man or <laughs> That's a great question. Um, I began writing the expats when we lived in Luxembourg, uh, when I was 40 years old, and I was a freelance writer and I hadn't been doing it very long after my editing career, my wife came home from the office one day and asked, uh, what would you think of living in Luxembourg? And <laughs> I'd never lived anywhere in, except New York City and college. And um, my little brother had lived in China in the 1990s and I'd never even seriously considered moving to the east side of Manhattan. Wow. And I felt like, you know, this was a, a hole in my personal experience and a mm -hmm. mark of cowardice on my character that I 
bold enough to go anywhere. And when Madeline got this job, uh, I thought, great, yes, I absolutely want to do this. Let's move to Europe. I didn't even really know what Luxembourg was. Yes. Um, but we went on a trip. We checked it out. It was terrific. We found a place to live. We found a school for the kids to go to. We packed up everything we owned. We said goodbye to New York City. We said goodbye to all of our friends and family. And we had no idea if or when we were ever going to come back or if Luxembourg was going to lead to London or Australia or Seattle or who the hell knew. We left. And I left behind my career. I left behind my identity as a person who'd lived in the same place my whole life and mm -hmm. the place where all my friends and family were. And I was fairly well settled in New York. And in as much as anybody can be settled at 40 years old in, a, in everything, I, I, was, I was secure in who I was. Um, and I was a person who'd been working at a particular type of job in a particular industry for a long time. And I got to Luxembourg and I had none of those things anymore. I was not a professional. I had no career. I had no friends. I had no family. I didn't know how to do any of the things you need to know how to do to be an expat or for that matter, a full-time parent. I was completely unaccustomed to driving a car every day, to cooking every day, to managing a household in the way that all of a sudden I was managing a household in a country I didn't understand, in a language I didn't speak. And I was surrounded in this new life by a lot of people who were in similar boats. Um, they'd Almost everybody I knew was an expat from somewhere else. Luxembourg is one of the EU capitals and it's mm -hmm. filled with EU bureaucrats and bankers and accountants. And everybody in my life basically had come from Sweden or England or Germany or Denmark or South Africa um, to come to this place for one member of the household to do a job in an office, and that member of the household was 99 times out of 100 a man. And I found myself mm. inhabiting a world exclusively populated by women who used to have careers in a different country, and now, like me, they did not. They were in their 30s and 40s, and they were at home with little kids, and they were wondering what it was that they used to do and whether they liked that and whether they would ever mm -hmm. do that again. Um, and I spent the year and a half that we lived there really surrounded by women who were not my wife, who uh, had a very demanding job with very late hours uh, and she was traveling at least a third of the time and I really didn't see much of her. And a lot of the women I knew had the same relationship with their husbands that a lot of people were there for jobs that involved a lot of travel and a lot of long hours. And I really, I knew almost no men when I was living in Luxembourg. And it was in that environment that I started writing the expats uh, from the point of view closest to the point of view that I could identify, which was my own, but in a world of women. And it felt to me very unnatural to write in that milieu and to be writing from mm -hmm. a male's point of view because then that's what the book would have been about. It would have been a book about a man surrounded by women. And that's a very specific circumstance and very, I think, difficult to relate to. I wanted to write a story that had a much more relatable point of view of a woman surrounded by other women in this very easy to understand circumstance, which a lot of people go through, whether you move abroad or not, mm -hmm. you're someone who used to have a career and now you find yourself tending to four-year-old children. 
And that's, that's something that I think we can all relate to, whether we've done it or not. That's a recognizable thing. And that recognizable thing is something that I wanted to write an exaggerated version of, but that would still be easy for us to understand, easy at a glance to say, yes, I see what's going on here. I know this. I know this woman. I know what problems she's facing. Let's see what she does about it. So in your transition from an editor uh, or in an edit editorial positions to being a writer, I assume that you, you work with an editor now. Uh, mm -hmm. what, what's that relationship been like sitting on the other side of the manuscript, taking criticism <laughs> and advice? Uh, I think it's both easier and harder for me. Um, I, one of the things I think is easier for me is I accept it as a given that I need lots and lots of editing and I need it in every draft and I need it forever. Um, I think that's something that not necessarily all writers recognize mm -hmm. and particularly novelists or whether recognize, I don't know if that's the right idea. I think it's, it's not easy to accept that um, you're going to benefit from a lot of negative feedback. I do accept it because I spent my life giving a lot of negative feedback. And I don't think I ever came across a book, a manuscript that could not be immensely improved by careful editing and careful revising on the part of the author. And I don't think that I'm the exception to that rule. I don't think there are any exceptions to that rule. I think it's very clear when I'm reading a, a finished book that the author did not take editing or the editor did not give it, that there are a lot of easy to fix, easy to identify problems that go unidentified and unfixed in books because for whatever reason, there are lots of reasons why people either don't edit or don't accept the editing, but I didn't want to be in that position. I think there are a lot of books in the world. There, we don't need more books. Nobody needs <laughs> another book yeah. and they certainly don't need a book by me. Um, what people are looking for, I think, are better books. And I don't want to produce more books. I want to produce only the best books possible that I can write. And I'm not saying that I'm a magical writer. I need to work at it in order for my books to be the best versions they can be. And I absolutely cannot do that alone. So I have uh, my agent, my literary agent is my first and most aggressive and most, I think, important editor. And he's also the, the single person who's been with me through all stages of all of my novels. Um, and I've, I solicit a lot of editorial feedback from what we now call beta readers, just used yes. to be early readers, and um, one or two editors in New York and another editor at a publishing house in England. And all done and told, I have eight or ten different reads on every book uh, at a minimum. And if anybody has any complaint about anything, I do something about that. Even if it's not what they're suggesting I do, I do something. If somebody doesn't like something, I don't really need them to explain to me why they don't like it. Um, I don't want to debate it with them because you never get to debate with a reader why they think your book is crappy. You never even get to hear it. They just put it down and throw it away and never read you again. So I don't really want to debate with people why I felt like that my decision was the right one. If they think it was the wrong one, then I feel obliged to do something about it. Yeah, that's been one of the things uh, when some of my betas bring up, you know, they'll, they'll almost apologize, you know, that, hey, um, yeah. I just had this kind of tough part with this, you know, I didn't want, well, I, I, I want to know that stuff because if you had an issue with it, likely other people will have an issue with it and I need to 
ensure that you know you have an entertaining and enjoyable experience reading this whole thing otherwise like you said you they put it down they never buy you again and you know they give you one store review so nobody buys you again you know it's just right and that's you know with any given consumer out there in the world that's that's a not necessarily pleasant thing but it's not the worst case scenario but also <laughs> that working in publishing for a long time i was constantly aware that at any given moment in the process there is somebody who might read your book and hate it and ruin it. And that's a dangerous position to be in. And, and, you know, whether it's the publisher of the publishing house or the sales director or the person who sells to the biggest account or the person who buys at the biggest account or the reviewer at the New York Times or the reviewer of Publishers Weekly, there are a lot of individual people behind the scenes within the publishing process who have a great deal of leverage to make a book happen or break it. And I never get to hear their individual feedback necessarily, mm -hmm. but that makes me hyper aware that I want to take heed of other people's feedback. Because as you say, if one person hates something, another person might that hate that same exact thing. And although many of my beta readers don't have any influence on the outcome of my book, um, they are nevertheless people who whose opinions could match the opinions of somebody who does. And so I spend a lot of time, I spend a lot more time revising than I do writing the first draft. Yeah, I, I really view the, 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 the writing process, the, the draft itself is probably the first third of the effort. And um, mm -hmm. that's the editing part is much more heavy lifting for me. And, um, you know, I, didn't really appreciate it until you know that first book came out right that you're mm -hmm. really putting a a piece of your soul out to the world for criticism and the internet is not a kind place <laughs> so no you know putting the most polished product out uh, that you can I, I think is imperative um, because you know you're taking you know people's hard-earned money and their time and in exchange mm -hmm. for something of, of value of entertainment and yeah I, I think it's uh, an incredible goal to try to put out those better books you talked about Mm -hmm. Now, as someone who's probably obviously pretty prolifically read, um, do you have a favorite fictional investigator, detective, or, or investigative team that, that you like to read as a go-to? Wow. Um, I don't think I do. And I'll tell you the truth. I don't, I don't think in terms of favorites in general. Um, I, and this is something that I, I needed to explain to myself a long time ago because I was felt I was constantly explaining it to my kids mm -hmm. who would ask me questions <laughs> like, what's your favorite color? You know, and that's a perfectly yeah. natural thing for a four-year-old to ask because they have favorite colors. And mm -hmm. one of them's favorite color was orange, which I think is just a remarkably strange favorite color to have. And I had to admit, yes. not I, I don't have a favorite color and I don't think most grownups have a favorite color. And I don't have favorites of most things. Like I don't have a favorite food there are a hundred different things that I love to eat depending on a certain mood. And I feel the same way about fiction as well. I, there are a few dozen writers who I think are masterful at some of the things that I would like to be masterful at, but that doesn't necessarily make them my favorites. They're, you know what I mean? It's mm -hmm. uh, yeah. I, I take, I read very broadly and I put down material uh, sometimes very quickly 
and I don't feel obliged to finish books or to make it to a certain point. I, I read in, I think, a very similar way to a lot of, um, a lot of editors, which is I consume a lot based on my needs or my desires right now. And sometimes I'm reading. I spent uh, all of last year judging a literary award that, um, that we gave out last night. And um, so I spent a year reading first novels. Uh, wow. And, you know, it was an overwhelming volume of reading to begin with. And some of them I disliked intensely and some of them I absolutely <laughs> loved. Um, some of them made it to the shortlist. Some of them I argued passionately should not be on our shortlist. And I spent so much time immersed in this, this little genre of uh, mysteries and thrillers and suspense novels that were debut novels written by an American author. And it, um, it was such a big experience of taking myself out of my typical way of reading and reading every other book that I opened over the course of 2018 was a debut suspense novel. Uh, and some of it I ended up loving. And I, I love the book that we gave the award to last night. And it was a terrific experience. Um, but all that being said, those types of books are not necessarily my favorites, you know, I, I, but I did read all of them and come to one that I was obligated as a judge to say, this is what I think is the best book in this niche of this year. And that was an extremely hard thing for me to do. Well, it's a uh, really positive then that there was, it was at least a tough choice. Yeah. 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 Now with that last non-answer in mind, I'm going to have to, you'll finally get, I think, shoehorned here. Um, yeah. I asked this of, of everyone on the, on the show, um, mostly because it's fun for me. But if you were to wake up tomorrow, Chris, and find yeah. yourself murdered, what, <laughs> fi what fictional investigator, detective, or investigative team would you want working the case? <laughs> uh, I really don't know. Um, you know, I, I think it would be a Michael Connolly cop. Um, Always I, a good pick. You know, he has a few different series and he just mm -hmm. launched one, um, a new one with one book that I read last year. I don't know if there's a second book left. I like the way they look at the world mm -hmm. with a slight twist on the angle. And that's the way I feel like I look at the world as well. And, and that's the way I feel like I'd want somebody to investigate uh, how I was murdered. Well, I, I appreciate I appreciate you with uh, giving us uh, give us an answer on that one. <laughs> it's it's like picking among your favorite children for some people I know. Um, it's a very hard question. Yeah, and I yeah. also I the, the truth is I I love a lot of books, and one of mm -hmm. the reasons that I'm I, I hesitate to talk about any type of favorite in the same way that I'm. I hesitate to talk about a favorite food is I always, my favorite book is always the last one I read that I loved. Um, yeah. and that's the one that's most vivid in my mind. And the things that are great about it are the things that are still resonating with me. You know, and I, I just finished a couple of weeks ago reading a new Jackson Brody mystery by Kate Atkinson, who spent mm -hmm. the past decade writing other types of books that weren't mysteries that are some of, um, I think the greatest books written in the past decade. And then she's returned to writing 
uh, a much more traditional mystery narrative after this long break. And I thought that it was absolutely terrific. And so, you know, right now, today, that was, that's my favorite um, detective over the past couple of decades, but that's just because I finished it a couple yeah. of weeks ago. Uh, a couple of weeks from now, I'll, I'll have a different favorite. Well, I am really looking forward to, to finishing the uh, the Paris diversion and seeing how, how this concludes and how this ends for, for Kate and her family. Uh, I really appreciate your time and coming on the show and, and talking to us about all this and sharing your expertise. Thank you, Gavin. It's been good. You've been listening to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters, the copyrighted broadcast of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Gavin Reese. In this episode's guest has been best-selling author Chris Pavoni. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other. Be safe out there.